You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, welcome to Radically Pragmatic uh, Podcast. I am Curtis Valentine. I am the co-director of the Reinventing America Schools Project here at the Progressive Policy Institute. I'm also um, a member of my local school board in Prince George's County, Maryland. I'm in my third term on the Prince George's County Board of Education. Uh, and I am so proud and so happy to have one of my fellow school board members, school board leaders, all the way from the great state of Texas. I'm going to allow him to introduce himself uh, and we'll have a great conversation about uh, education, about educational governance and the future of education uh, in this country. Um, so without further ado, I will allow uh, my guest and a member of the Reinventing America Schools Advisory Council, Cinto Ramos, to introduce himself. Well, saludos, greetings, everybody. Uh, Curtis, it's good to be with you. Thank you for the invite. Uh, my name is Jacinto Ramos Jr., but my nickname is Cinto. I'm from Fort Worth, Texas, and I'm also in my third term here serving uh, in Fort Worth Independent School District. Uh, when I started out, we had about 85,000 students. We're down to about 75. Uh, we were at about 82 when the pandemic hit. Um, and so, you know, we've we've got a lot of work ahead of us over here in Texas, but uh, good to be with you all. And Excited to participate. For those who don't know, Jacinto and I both serve on the Council of Urban Boards of Education Steering Committee. It's a, la a national organization, which is a part of the National School Boards Association. We met through that affiliation. Jacinto is the uh, recent past president of the, of the steering committee, and I'm still on the board, and he is still a member of that body. And so to together, we have uh, worked to really push the National School Boards Association to really prioritize uh, educational equity for all students. Cinto, you are also a leader at Leadership ISD in Texas. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization and, and its mission? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm the Chief of Governance and Leadership for Leadership ISD, which is a nonprofit in Texas, primarily focused in three main areas, Dallas County, Tarrant County, which is where Fort Worth is, and Harris County, where Houston's at my role in, in what we do is we support boards, uh, but we also provide some accountability by way of community fellows. And so we, we educate community leaders of all walks of life, you know, educational leaders as well that engage in the process with us so that they become more aware of what school boards are doing and what they should be doing, which is should be focusing on student outcomes. And so applying that kind of positive pressure to school boards to make sure that they're leaning into governance that they are monitoring student outcome data, uh, and that they're also seeing progress. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a it's an amazing nonprofit, and I'm privileged to be able to work with them. When we first met, I think you and I gravitated to each other because while we serve in these positions as education policymakers, our heart are, is still with the people. We still identify with the everyday folks who come and enroll our students, their children in our schools, and. When I found out that you were a, uh, a certified juvenile 
probation officer. It all kind of made sense. Talk about that experience and how that led you to want to run for the school board. Yeah, you know, I, I get to hear everyone's stories as I meet them. And I, I think one of the easiest icebreakers to meet it when meeting new board members is to have them tell their story. And I, I don't think I differ from them <laughs> that I had never anticipated ever running for public office and doing anything close to what I'm doing right now. I was a juvenile probation officer and a gang interventionist for a couple. I was a gang interventionist for 12 years and I was a juvenile probation officer for 21 years uh, and also a youth minister in my neighborhood. So I was surrounded by young people 24-7, and I got to hear it real and raw and uncut from them, what was happening in their lives, in the community, and also in the schools. And so, you know, I don't talk about dropouts anymore. I talk about pushouts, well aware of how young people are pushed out of school systems. Uh, and that wasn't something that sat well with me. Now, I was always an advocate for the young people that I was working with and their families. Uh, but, you know, it's something else when it's my own child. So when my son when I enrolled him at the here in the neighborhood at the high school, you know, we saw the standard immediately dropped on him. The expectations were dropped. And mind you, that my kids had gone to private school. They had got they we lived in suburbia, uh, and we purposefully moved back to the neighborhood because we were inspired by some of the local educational folks, including the principal. And so, for the first time, I witnessed and, and felt fully what it was to have a school system. Uh, not expect the best and not also offer the best to my child. Uh, and that didn't sit well with me. So long story short, that ends up putting me in a position where I'm running my mouth and talking smack about <laughs> Fort Worth ISD. And people said, you ought to put your name on the ballot. And that was the last thing I thought I'd ever do, but we did. And eight and a half years later, I've been sitting in the seat. And, you know, that that's that's kind of how it all started. And not only did you sit in the seat, you made a little history. You know, you became the youngest board president of the Fort Worth ISD. And, you know, being a school board member is uh, a very interesting role. I mean, myself, this was not my ambition uh, to run for the school board or to be appointed to the school board. But I know when I was approached about it, I said, well, if I can be the school board member in my own image, if I don't have to sort of be a carbon copy of those I see in the role now or in the past, I would do it. And I, I I appreciate how you have sort of been a model for me to be able to say, I can be a school board member in any way I want to be. You know, I don't have to do it the way others do it. And it's it's worked for me and, and kept me in this role. But at the same time, I think over, over COVID, I think we've all been tested as school board members to really respond to uh, a once in a generation pandemic. And you know, it seems it seems though that during during uh, during COVID, everyone became a school board member. Everyone, you know, everyone had all the answers because education was put at the forefront. Uh, but we came out, you know, for the most part, the students are back in schools. Schools uh, have reopened. Uh, there's a, a bunch of, you know, ton of money coming down from the federal level. And so I want to talk uh, before we get into opportunities, I want to talk challenges. Uh, and so right now, coming out of COVID, what do you see as some of the challenges facing school boards? in Texas, but also nationally, as we try to, you know, move ourselves out of this? Man, there's tons of them. And well put, because, yeah, thinking about when I ran for school board, I ran for, you know, all of the traditional issues that I was experiencing in my neighborhood. Young people being pushed out, young people associating with gangs or being engaged in that process. Um, there was things that I thought I was prepared for 
and never would I have expected something like a worldwide pandemic to fall on my lap. And then, like you said, right, for school boards to become the center of a very hot politicized environment. And so, yeah, I think the challenge is where to begin. I think first and foremost is learning loss uh, and the conversation of accelerating the learning to get back at least at the minimum where we were, which even at the minimum, we weren't where we needed to be. The challenges of being able to work with my colleagues that now can have a, a, a much more real conversation as to those equity gaps that we knew existed, a number of us knew existed, but now as everyone has talked about, right, it's it's race to the top. Everyone can see it now, the, the digital divide, uh, you know, the access to resources and healthcare, uh, all of those things that I already knew to be true. Now it's my colleagues who maybe didn't always necessarily see it. Now, now we can't hide from that conversation. The data is telling us that. Uh, challenges also even for board members, you know, the mental health and the mental well-being, you know, not only for us as leaders in these roles and in these positions, because my board, similar to a lot of other boards in urban districts, are are heavy under attack. You know, a lot of false information, you know, first it was reopen schools and we'll wear masks. Then it would this year it was, you know, glad you reopened schools, but we don't want masks anymore. And on top of that, you know, who could or who couldn't get vaccinated. So a lot of those hot debated topics that have fallen front and center in front of us, and I've listened to a couple of podcasts as well, where, you know, I'm, I've, I understand the history because you and I have lived in that history. We're part of it. Uh, we, you know, I'll speak for what's true for me. I can clearly see all of the connecting pieces as to how people weren't paying attention to the school board in the in the day-to-day business. And then all of a sudden they find themselves in a position where they think they can influence Um, you know, the decisions we're making, which ideally would be a really good thing if we're focusing on student outcomes, if we're focusing on the overall well-being of children. Uh, The unfortunate part is that that's not always the case. And on top of that is superintendents who are being pushed out, uh, board members who are resigning and leaving their positions earlier because of the strain that it's taken on them. Because at the end of the day, you know, for me in Texas, we're volunteers. We run a campaign and, and there is no income attached to that. Uh, Much the same for most board members across the country. And obviously there are some states that do pay and compensate their board members. But even at that, I don't know what the compensation would look like for me to want to take the hits, right? Not only politically, but more importantly, personally, and how many board members I'm in contact with that are uh, being threatened. You know, it's one thing to be threatened that we're going to take you out of your seat when the election cycle comes around. I've been through that cycle. But it's another one when they're actually threatening the well-being of of a board member, of a community servant volunteer. And even now here in Fort Worth, everyone can Google us. Fox News is zeroed in on Fort Worth ISD. And we have a community member who co-chairs our racial equity committee. And she's now under attack nationwide, getting death threats from all over the place. And this is a this is a woman who, you know, was part of the gang intervention work that I did years ago. Uh, so she's got tough skin, but at the same time, uh, uh, I don't know that all community people are prepared for what elected officials have to go through, right? The, the scar tissue that those of us in public service uh, accumulate over the years, it's not the same when it's a community person that's serving at the will of the board and all of a sudden the spotlight target, you know, nationally and statewide to where our lieutenant governor's tweeting about my superintendent and you know, the the folks at the national level and Fox News are beating up on the work that we're doing. There's so many challenges, man. It's like, that's an excellent question because then I know we're going to get to talking about 
then what are all the opportunities? Yeah, I mean, you've you said it better uh, than anybody else could. Um, it's trying to address a lot of the issues that were pre-pandemic that were, you know, that we were trying to address in a lot of districts, including your own, were making tremendous gains. Um, and then obviously COVID set us back, but then to add the politics, you know, as we think about challenges, the segue between the challenges and opportunities for me is how do we set ourselves up to take advantage of the moment? And that's the opportunity, I think, because you have um, nearly everywhere a one-to-one device system. You've had partners come in and really support this idea of uh, ensuring every student had access to the internet. And I know we're not all there, but we're much better than we were before, obviously. But there's ways to create efficiencies. You know, we're having bus driver shortages and teacher shortages, and we can't keep substitutes. But yet I think there's an opportunity to say, is there a way to create a more efficient way to educate students, to meet them where they are, to ensure that every child has their own sort of individual educational plan, no matter where they are on the on the scale. But that's an opportunity. If you think about opportunities, you know, in Texas, through the work that you all are doing, uh, and the opportunities you have, and we'll talk a little bit later about 1882, but how, how do you think about the opportunities that, you know, people who are watching, whether it be school board members or superintendents or policymakers, is this an op- once in a generation opportunity for us to reform education in this country? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is one where I'm looking to see what resources are out there that we may have been passing up on. Uh, I think about a resource that we've, we're utilizing in Fort Worth now where we have virtual teachers that are now teaching subjects um, where they have students not only from Fort Worth, but Austin and a number of other districts. But these are like very well-prepared teachers, certified teachers that can do it virtually. So our young people were accustomed for a little bit to learn virtually. So now we've got virtual teachers that are you know, educating our students. And that seems to be working better than the substitute in some cases where, you know, if a substitute isn't properly trained and prepared in our school system, uh, you know, the young people usually refer to them as the babysitters. So having a virtually certified teacher seems to be a pretty good idea. And that's an opportunity that we passed on for several years. Uh, mental health, right? Uh, the mental well-being of our, of our children, of our educators, of our community members. One that I was a strong advocate for being in the juvenile justice system, seeing that firsthand and the impact that it has on young people and families. Now it's, you know, it, it's something that's a lot easier to bring up for people to entertain as, as a possible option. And knowing that there's ESSER funds directly related to mental health services. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking at superintendents and board members talking about money's not really as much of an issue right now because of what you described, you know, those federal monies being pumped into our school systems. The question that I'm having is, do we have that, that leadership that is looking five, 10, 15 years down the road versus just doing things the way they've always been done, using the same resources and getting the same sorry results. And I think that there's tons of opportunities. Uh, So from the education, the mental health, um, the professional development, um, you know, the digital, uh, the digital opportunities that we have. I've watched, I've still got one more son who's in the school system. I've watched him progress from you know, not being used to having somebody virtually work with him to being able to do that and then do the in-person, um, you know, and still choosing to wear a mask, even though we can't mandate masks in our, in our schools because of a lawsuit. 
Um, so, you know, I think that there's tons and tons of opportunities. Really, man, just looking for those innovative people to to break out of the status quo and do something a lot much a lot more different. Well, I mean, you 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 ripped me up for you know what I want to talk about as we move forward, uh, as we sort of try to address the challenges with the opportunities, but also how we we sort of thrust our our children into the politics and sort of uh, you know put them in the middle. And I mean, to have your son have to you know wonder whether in some cases, if he wears a mask, he could get ridiculed by his classmates or if because he's wearing a mask, you know, he's affiliated with a certain political party or position that, you know, in 2021, uh, even going back to 20, late 2020, education became a political football. Uh, and it really came to a head, I think, you know, particularly in the Virginia, recent Virginia gubernatorial election where uh, GOP, you know, now um, governor elect really capitalized on this idea of critical race theory, um, but also uh, the Democrat response to school closures, to so-called mass mandates, and have, you know, the, the, the Republican Party has really, I don't want to say, I guess hijacked this mantra of parent power, this idea of organizing parents, which had been going on prior to COVID with many uh, Black and Latino parents around the country. But as we go into sort of 2022, and we're thinking about midterm elections and these conversations around, you know, education being at the forefront of a lot of statewide and I believe 2024 uh, presidential elections. Where do you see, you know, education, um, you know, being being places as far as 2022 on on the political landscape? What are your thoughts? Yeah. So I guess, you know, let me start with this one. I think that there's politics. And then there's politics. I can handle <laughs> politics. I can handle politics, right? Which is, you know, the day-to-day -day stuff. But what, what that what you're describing to me is politics. And here's here's part of what I mean. Um, the GOP is 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 at least here in Texas, well aware that they are funding uh, initiatives to to organize and mobilize parents to push that narrative of anti-CRT, anti-mask, anti-vax, uh, and also even now anti-SEL, right? That all of this is being labeled Marxist. Uh, I'm watching um, a lot of people, uh, in, in at least in, in my town, who are ill-informed, uh, do not have the facts, are not looking at peer-reviewed scholarly work. Um, they're looking at uh, social media and being fed information by a handful of folks. And also, like I said, being funded to pay to organize other people. Uh, I don't see that from the other side, from the Democratic side in Texas, right? And, and I'm, I'm well known to beat up on, on any and all parties who's not focused on young people. And so here, right, we have one group that is really mobilized and funded and then the other side is, is just is being complicit because they're being silent and they're not saying or doing anything. So I think for me, right, that's when I look at 2022, this isn't like where I'll back up a little bit more. We were the district that were known for, for doing a transgender policy when it really wasn't a transgender policy. But we didn't apologize for advocating for transgender youth. President Obama at that time is the reason why he issued uh, the, the uh, executive order nationwide that trans students could go to the restroom of their choosing. 
but it's because of Fort Worth, Texas that that happened because our lieutenant governor was coming after me and my superintendent, Dr. Scribner, because we were we were being alleged that that's what we were doing. We we put we've been through this before, and during that storm that lasted three three to four months. This right here is not lasting three or four months. It's still going strong, and if anything, it's picking up steam. So, like I said, even if you just Google Fox News and Fort Worth ISD, you'll see what I'm referencing that we're at the center of of a lot of these folks because Fort Worth is also like the last major red city in the state of Texas. So it's it's become ground zero. So when you when you ask me about 2022, I am witnessing it's a storm that's not going to slow down. It's it's not mm. going to lose momentum like other other parent groups had that were completely voluntary, not funded. And some of these folks that are gravitating towards our school board meetings are wanting to seek public office. So what better platform than where the cameras are already set up at and where we're recording and putting the audio where they can go and grab that off of the Internet and add that to their campaign trail? They're setting up for 2022. I'm not confused. And that's what I'm saying. That's the politics, because now you have put the well-being, not only the well-being of children, but also their physical health. When we had a lawsuit that's telling our, our young people that we're telling us that we can't mandate masks in Fort Worth, Texas. Right. And knowing that the legal system works the way it does, but it's also controlled by the GOP in Texas. So not only the state leaders, but the, the local leaders, our county judge our mayor, like everything is red Republican, except for the progressive board that was the first ones in the South to pass the racial and ethnic equity policy. And that's another reason why we've become a big target for them. Well, I mean, you, you just said something there. And I think what we've seen, particularly as the composition of the Congress has changed and sort of just the number of, you know, the, the breakdown in the, in the House and the Senate and this sort of eye towards state houses, uh, taking over state houses, and now even going more local, taking over school boards potentially, could allow uh, them politically to have as much power, even though nationally their numbers are, are falling and just through typically just sort of maps and gerrymandering um, that if you see this number of folks in, this, in, in both parties in Washington, the number of Americans who've elected each of them to their office there's a disproportionality there, but because of the gerrymandering, uh, you have the composition now. So this idea of looking at school boards is quite interesting and, and could be quite scary. And so my next question is sort of what's, what's the response? So you're getting a phone call, Cinto, from, uh, from someone from the party and saying, you know, uh, I know we've been quiet. Uh, I know we have been reactive. I know... Uh, we have not been very clear about what we stand for, but by the way, we stand against. Uh, what's your message to Democratic, Democrat, Democratic members of school boards on how to be bold about education and to really shape the conversation as a response, as, as compared to reacting to the conversation around what is important uh, for education in America, but particularly for black and brown students? Man. That, that's 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 the money question for me, man, because I think um, the beauty of local school boards and being appointed or elected locally, you know, in theory, allows us to be closest to, you know, the young people and the needs of our communities. Uh, with this being so politicized, 
we also got to recognize and acknowledge that there are people who run or, or serve on school boards because they want to use it as a launching platform for higher political office. And if that's what our school boards end up really becoming, where that becomes the major, you know, that mean that becomes the main reason why folks sit on school boards, then I'm going to go back to what I just heard at NAPSI in LA. I got to sit in the lobby with some old school uh, black folks that um, had been had been through a lot and were connected to folks that went through a lot. And NAPSI is the National Alliance of Black School Educators. A conversation that I loved having with them is I asked them, I said, when have you ever seen it anything close to this? And they said, our friends that served during the civil rights movement. That's that's the closest we think that we that we can see when it was this politicized. And right, they're talking about the desegregation and the allocation of resources. It's scary for me to think of people that might get into these seats that aren't focused on students of color, aren't focused on equity, aren't focused on student outcomes, but are focused on their own political agenda. Now, having a political agenda isn't new to a school board either, right? My agenda was clear when I ran. I wanted to improve um, mariachis. I wanted to improve the football program. And I wanted to improve parent engagement. Those three weren't necessarily directly related to student outcomes. I didn't know the data on third grade reading, early years math, middle years math, college career readiness. I didn't know any of that data because I was an ill-prepared board member. But the difference, I think, was that I was so new to the game, but my heart was focused on young people, that if we start allowing folks to get into these school board seats that have a political agenda directly related to their to what they want and not for the focus of students, we're going to exacerbate this problem that we've already had. I mean, my argument here in Fort Worth is I inherited a hell of a mess from a majority white elected body from one really representing one part of our town, not the entire town. And you're going to blame me for the sorry student outcomes. Now we're trying to clean this up by actually implementing a governance framework, right? Teaching board members what their roles are, how to, how to actually improve student outcomes. But yet now, and that's, that's I think we're going to go to 1882, the privatization of our education system. And then you, you add putting people in positions, of, of power and authority to oversee the education of primarily children of color. And there's a high probability that one, either they're not going to be people of color. And then two, even if they are people of color, doesn't mean that they're going to be conscious people of color. They might be tokenized, right? They might be people as James Baldwin described, they took the bribe already. Uh, and I don't mean the financial mm -hmm. bribe. I mean the bribe that they're willing to sell out their people in their communities. So that's a super scary thought for me, man. I mean, that's one that's keeping me up. And I think that the opportunities are for what I get to do at Leadership by Disease, we get to develop people, raise their level of consciousness and prepare them to serve an elected office. And really what I've been telling everyone in Texas, hold the line. If, if nothing else, hold the line, stay engaged, you know, and I, I, I'd love to say that we, could, that we could play some offense, but it's kind of what you just said earlier as well. Um, a lot of pe a lot of folks have been stagnant, and in my opinion, in Texas, the Democratic Party has been super stagnant. Yeah, I mean, and I'll, I'll just say, um, uh, mariachis and football programs increased attendance. I don't want people to, to, to ever underestimate just the power of opportunities for students to come to schools to see themselves, to find a reason to want to come to school, um, and so oftentimes people give short shift to, to extracurricular programs. 
But everyone I know had that one program at school and that one advisor, whether it be a classroom teacher or just a, a band conductor, a mariachi conductor, a football coach who inspired them to want to go to school. Um, and they are, you know, they're professionals now. But before I let you go, uh, 1882, uh, Texas Partnership Bill, Senate Bill 1882, uh, passed in 2017, pretty historic and really, you know, reverberated across the country particularly projects like ours. And just for those who, who don't know, what it does is provides incentives for school districts like Fort Worth and others to contract or partner with an open enrollment charter school, higher education institutions, nonprofits, government entities, and talk about 1882, talk about it in, in, in Fort Worth, but just talk about it across the state and the impact it's having on education. Yeah, you know, 1882 is a sore subject for a lot of board members in the state of Texas, um, public school board members. You know, I, I, my super, I, I, I love the way my superintendent views this topic. And he was in Phoenix Union where they had to compete with the charter school systems. And in essence, that's what this becomes, privatization of, of our educational systems by way of a partnership, though, where we like willingly uh, give up that campus, partner with them. Um, but also think about it, right? Like there's a three-year window for this campus to turn it around. And so even though we monitor the data, it's not like we can really do too much with it. Uh, in 1882, and we do have a couple of partnerships in Fort Worth because my superintendent said, you know what, this is the political uh, monster in Fort Worth. It, like I said, it's, it's, it's the last major red city in the state of Texas. Uh, and, and to be real, a lot of our philanthropic community is heavily invested in that, including people like Alice Walton. So when we've got heavy hitters that are financially putting money in there, you know, and financially invested, um, you know, it kind of makes sense to partner and at least give it a shot. What my superintendent learned in Phoenix is, and, and you can check out what Phoenix Union is doing now, their charter schools, the ones that I've been able to become familiar with, used to be primarily children of color. They've become the new version of private schools where they're not as, they're not as focused on children of color because they've gone back to their public school systems, right? So, in you know, I'm mindful and I'm watching the patterns of those that have charter schools. And like I said, we're one of the few that actually has an 1882 partnership. Uh, but even just yesterday, I was looking at some of the data. Um, they're not doing much better, if, if even at all, than what we were trying to do. Now, mind you, there's a lot of politics that was happening there too. When at that time we had 20, 30 year board members, veterans who are handpicking principals or pushing the superintendents to do certain things that they didn't necessarily want to do. So I agree why there's frustration with school boards when board members are micromanaging and overstepping their boundaries. We now have a new board in Fort Worth, and that's not the case. The reality is that it's our communities of color, and I'll be even more specific, it's our black children in Fort Worth ISD who get the, the worst end of the stick. And to tell you what the growth has been like for me, when I first got elected and I was focused on those initiatives, I wasn't looking at the data and I wasn't paying attention to what my colleague Quentin Phillips and I just talked about at the board meeting last month. We noticed that our black children in Fort Worth are being outperformed by emerging bilinguals, English language learners, and also being outperformed by our SPED kids. So, you know, the stereotypes or the assumptions, whatever that looks like, it's bad that our black children are being outperformed by other populations. We don't want any of them being at the bottom the way they are, but we also got to call it out. We got to isolate race. 
when black children in Fort Worth aren't being served that well. So when an 1882 partnership comes in, uh, they're, they're, they've got funding, they've got money, the state of Texas is, is sending it their way. I'm also not confused, man. There's people making money off of that. And if they're making money and they improve student outcomes for children, then I'm a believer and I'm all in. But if people are going to be making a lot of money off of this and we're going to continue with the same patterns, then I want to also have a real conversation with the state of Texas about that one. And, and, and I guess my follow-up, I guess, like this conversation, you know, at, at, at Reinventing America Schools, you know, we, we stay on all, you know, sort of three principles. One, this idea of, of choice and giving an opportunity, opportunity to really identify those school models that really, you know, are best for them. Uh, this idea of autonomy, giving, giving school leaders and schools more control at the school level, but also accountability. And so as you think about 1882 um, in your district, what are recommendations you would have to the state legislature in order to improve that, to ensure that, at least from your perspective, there's the accountability that your constituents elected you to carry out? Yeah, I think I think one of the main ones is um, having a little bit more power at the local school board if we're going to partner with them that we not give up the campus for for that three to five year period entirely. Now, there are, you know, some asterisk marks in there. But uh, in essence, the way it's presented to me and the way it's presented a lot of board members in Texas. And by the way, the reason why most Texas school boards, school board members don't want 1882s. Uh, they believe that they're they are fully allowing the privatization of our school system. So we're kind of unique in that. And I get a lot of calls from board members all around the state, um, but they're just completely resistant to the idea. But in our case, it's just the way it was presented to me that, you know, well, by the way, we also need to interview as a board with the Texas Education Agency to convince them that we're going to do everything we need to do to, to allow that, that 1882 partnership to, do, to get their job done. But if we're going to give up that much power, I also would like to have the opportunity to take it back, it, you know, within a couple of years, not not waiting three to five. Um, so, like, think about it. What job could I take and wait to get a three year review? Um, and, and, you know, if I get a job, I'm, I'm you know, <laughs> every week, every month I'm on I'm on the job. But in essence, in 1882 feels like they get a three year window. Their data doesn't count towards them or towards us which is somehow some way supposed to be a carrot for us, but that just doesn't feel right. So it's that feeling of giving up that much power to a school that, that that's ours in our community. Um, that doesn't sit well with me and that doesn't sit well with a lot of board members. Well, well I, I would hope the legislature would see an opportunity to speak with you and your colleagues uh, about how to improve it in areas that it is working um, to ensure that that's carried out, but areas where it's not, um, you know, I think, Oftentimes, legislation is passed at the federal or state level, uh, and people, you know, um, often uh, lose track. But there, there are stories that happen every every year in school districts. I don't think people should look at them as a uh, as adversarial. Say, let's just have this conversation because we want to put children at the center of it. Uh, and if it's if if it works, let's try it. Uh, if it doesn't, then we need to reform it. And so, uh, I think that's that's a fair conversation to have. I think, you know, we think about the stories that are coming out of, you know, out of San Antonio and others that, you know, having those conversations with those where it has worked in some areas and where it needs to be improved uh, to sit down. And that's, that's, uh, that's a fair conversation. I think as we as we wrap up, you know, I, I want to think about next steps. It's sort of is where do we go from here? And I spent a lot of my time just thinking about that. Like, again, you know, in this time of post-COVID, of politics, of resources, 
uh, of this idea of, of, of partnerships and, and working with the community and nonprofits uh, and board governance and accountability. What does the future look like for education, particularly uh, for black and brown students uh, in America coming out of COVID where politics has been put at the forefront um, and opportunities uh, are coming at us on a daily basis? Man, I think first and foremost for our board members, it's it's what you just said with that word governance, that we as board members become fully versed and well versed on what our role actually is and how to how to really, really push for better student outcomes. Uh, and I think that that's it. If, if the, when the student outcomes begin to go up, you know, in the pandemic, we went from 34 percent of our third graders reading on grade level. We're down to 26 in math. We're down to 14 percent. And again, you look at the black and brown students in our school district, they're the ones that are at the bottom. Our white students, we only have 11% white student body, but they're seriously outperforming their black and brown counterparts. I think that as long as those kinds of data points continue to exist, it's going to allow for all of these other options and opportunities to keep coming in. But the reality is, like I said earlier, I inherited this mess. Um, I just happen to be one of those people that's trying to undo it and redirect it. Um, so I think for what do we go from here? First and foremost, for those that are in the board seats, we got to learn our role and we got to lean into that heavily. We got to support superintendents that are killing it and doing great work. And we also got to hold superintendents that are BSing and playing around and we got to get rid of them. So I think that's the beginning of where do we go from here? The political stuff, we got to develop a bench too. You know, I can't vacate my seat and just, you know, think that somebody's going to come in and, and continue the path. We have to develop a bench and we have to have people ready to go. And that's part of my mindset of that's how we hold the line. Uh, and then to me, it's there's just so many opportunities coming out of, or not, we're not even out of the pandemic yet. There's so many opportunities because of the data points are what we would hope would be at rock bottom. We got to also understand that we've lost decades worth of academic achievement and set ourselves back at least a decade, at least in Texas, that's how we're looking at it. So we don't want it to take a decade to get back to the minimum standard where we were because we already knew that that wasn't good enough. So I think there's opportunity uh, to, to change that narrative as well. Well, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. You've given us so much food for thought. Uh, those who are listening in have definitely learned a lot um, and have been challenged. I think we should all challenge ourselves every day. Uh, and I also tell you, you've also made history. You are the first member of the Radically Pragmatic podcast series that is specifically for the Reinvent American Schools Project. Uh, and so you are inaugural uh, guest uh, in, our, in our limited series. And so we appreciate you again. Thank you so much for joining uh, our advisory council and for your leadership at the Fort Worth ISD and with Leadership ISD. And so for all our listeners, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Again, my name is Curtis Valentine. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.